gun control takes a heavy hit as Republicans sweep Virginia, and an interview with author Tim Mack about the NRA's turmoil. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I am your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of The Reload. You can head on over to The Reload if you want to get a membership today. We got monthly memberships. We got yearly memberships. We even got lifetime memberships. Something for everybody. It's a beautiful thing. But if you buy one, you will get access to our exclusive posts where we analyze the week's news. You'll get our exclusive Sunday newsletter for members only, and you'll get access to this podcast a day early, which is a wonderful perk. You will also have the opportunity to be on the podcast, which we will have another member interview coming up, I believe, on next week's episode. It's one of my favorite segments personally. Uh, I think Jake, uh, contributing writer Jake Fogelman here is with us. I think that's one of your favorite pod, uh, podcast segments as well, right? Yeah, it's always interesting to hear from the uh, the subscribers and hear how they got into guns or even if they're not super into guns, why they want to read about it. So yeah, it's always it's, great to hear. It's interesting to see the kind of community we're, we're building with the publication, I think, and uh, who, who it appeals to. And obviously, there's, I think there's a lot of people in D.C. who are reading us. We have a lot of Senate staffers and House staffers, NRA staffers, uh, all kinds of even the gun control group staffers are, are subscribed to our newsletter. So it's always interesting to see who's who's following along, who's, who's taking value in this information that we're presenting. And uh, speaking of which, this week we have several big stories. It's actually a very big week for news, I think. I mean, I feel like I say that a lot, but this week really was pretty, pretty big. Uh, and I know because I was up watching the farm, um, watching my mom's horses for the week and trying to run the site when we were having a bunch of things happen, including, first off, one of your stories, the Supreme Court had its oral arguments in the New York gun carry case, the first Supreme Court gun case that's likely to make it to a merits ruling in a decade. And the court, as you noted in your piece, tried to find perhaps something that's going to be even more important for the future of gun litigation in this country than whatever they rule on the actual issue. But the standard that should be considered by lower courts when they take on new gun cases in the future. Tell us a little bit about what the Supreme Court was pondering in that case. Tell us a little bit about who said what, what they wanted to know, and what they got as their answer. So, yeah, as you said, multiple justices um, asked questions, uh, Justice Gorsuch in particular, um, made it a point to ask both Paul Clement, who was representing the petitioners, uh, and the Solicitor General Fletcher, basically, uh, you know, how would you like us to review this law? Um, There's no real standard. uh, Do we do a traditional balancing test, intermediate scrutiny, strict scrutiny, where you're uh, comparing what the state's interest is in this law versus the right, the extent to which the right is infringed? Uh, or a text history and tradition test, which is sort of what they were leaning towards. It's what both Clement argued for, and it's what the U.S. Solicitor General argued for, where you look at the text. What does the text mean? Uh, look at the history of the law and similar laws, and when what's the tradition of those laws being upheld uh, as sort of an evaluation for this law. And that's sort of what they're leaning towards, um, which could have all sorts of implications for future gun cases if the, the court chooses to adopt that as a binding standard for gun cases going forward. Right, because this the criticism has been up to this point that while Heller was a landmark decision that established for the first time an individual right to keep and bear arms that, that extended at the very least to inside your own home and the ability to keep the most popular kind of gun inside your own home, it didn't really set out a clear standard for how lower courts should review gun cases moving forward. And That's right. a lot of them kind of just did whatever they wanted has <laughs> is, is been the criticism right. that, you know, lower courts have just kind of applied whatever standard they felt like applying and uh, during a given trial. So sure. Gorsuch was going through and and Kavanaugh as well and asking these plaintiffs and the defense, what the heck, what should we do here? What should we set as the standard? And I think that says a lot because, as you noted there, 
that could have much further reaching implications than whatever they rule on New York's restrictive gun carry law, whether they strike that law down. I mean, that's still important. And I have a piece coming on what exactly that would mean if they strike it down and how many people will be affected. Because it's still a lot of people, but it's there's only eight states that have sure. that kind of law. Whereas a lot of states have other kinds of gun laws that are going to come under heavy scrutiny from gun rights activists in the courts in the coming years here, especially if the Supreme Court says, hey, here's how you need to decide these cases from now on. And sure. the text history tradition standard, which I believe you're writing an analysis piece actually on some of the intricacies with that uh, and, and how right. some of the pitfalls maybe even for gun rights advocates who want to adopt that standard, because that's, that's generally agreed what most gun rights activists want is the text history tradition standard. And like That's you said, right. interestingly, the government in this case, uh, the federal government said that that's also what they want. But there was a right. there was one difference right between the two of them. What, what was it? Uh, yeah. So this, the, the difference was um, in terms of the fallback. So if there's no historical analog to whatever law they're considering or if they don't see the historical record as being uh, properly comparable to the law at issue, the uh, petitioners would like to see a strict scrutiny standard applied, which means that at the whatever law at issue has to be very narrowly tailored to whatever the government's compelling interest is. So in a gun case, obviously, that's public safety, right? So the government would have to show that their regulation is very narrowly tailored to achieving those ends. And, you know, in, in practice, that basically means the government loses. So the government uh, their argument was, no, it should be intermediate scrutiny if that's the case, in which case it's kind of back to square one where judges kind of decide on the fly. It's more of a policy judgment, which is what Kavanaugh's critique of that whole situation is. Right. Because Kavanaugh spoke up uh, even even when strict scrutiny was suggested by the plaintiffs, right. by Paul Clement, Kavanaugh spoke up and said that creates dangers uh, in using balancing tests, which is something that Heller had said. Uh, the, the court right. had said in Heller they didn't want to use as balancing tests because the Second Amendment is a core constitutional right and it shouldn't be balanced against uh, government interests because it's too and, important. And he reiterated that in his Heller 2 dissent, the famous Heller 2 dissent. Uh, he made the same case. And, you know, this is where we kind of get to see why gun rights advocates like this approach so much, because he gave a pretty spirited defense of why an assault weapons ban would be struck down under a text history and tradition standard. Right. So that's where you see a lot of the hope coming from for gun rights advocates. Yeah, because a lot of a lot of modern gun laws would not survive a text history tradition sure. standard, most likely. Although, as I think you're going to get into in a member's piece here soon, there is some wiggle room in, in that standard. Uh, but sure, it's it'll be interesting to see what exactly the court does. It does feel like they're leaning towards coming up with an actual standard for lower courts to follow this time around so that sure. their rulings aren't uh, more or less ignored <laughs> by some of the lower courts, uh, which was the big critique from gun rights activists at the very least over the last decade or so. Uh, and even from some of the justices themselves, uh, Thomas was has been very vocal in how he thinks the court has fallen down on the job in terms of protecting the Second Amendment uh, and allowing the lower courts to do more or less whatever they feel like doing. But uh, we also had a, another big story, right? Uh, the Virginia elections, or we had a number of elections that came out uh, this week on Tuesday uh, that were decided. And in Virginia, in particular, we had some fairly surprising results. I mean, we had some surprising results in New Jersey as well, although the Democrat incumbent there ended up holding on just barely uh, to his seat or to his governorship, I guess. But in Virginia, Republicans swept everything. They took the governorship, the lieutenant governorship, the attorney general's seat. They took back control of the House of Delegates as well. And this has major implications for gun control and gun regulations inside of Virginia, right? So I, I wrote a piece on that talking a bit about the coming consequences of that election, of what impact that's going to have. And I think it'll be interesting to see what actually comes of it beyond 
the basic. And the basic is there's no chance that an assault weapons ban is going to pass in Virginia anymore. And I think that's that's actually a very big deal because you had several years there where it went from really there was a real possibility that confiscation of assault weapons of you know so-called assault weapons of things like AR15s, AK47s and other similar rifles could actually be confiscated and taken from people by you know or at least people would be made into felons if they tried to retain possession of these guns which right. is again you know i think that's pretty fair to call confiscation even if there is a long way of saying confiscation right even if there isn't a literal plan to go door to door to take guns if you make them illegal to possess the people either <laughs> have to give them up or become criminals so that's confiscation i think in any fair reading of it but that was a real possibility in virginia that was something that terry mcauliffe the the gubernatorial candidate, the Democrat who lost, actually had supported at the time, uh, several, you know, back in 2019 when uh, Democrats were running for, well, Democrats retook control of all branches of the Virginia state government. And so that, I think that's the major takeaway is that you went from a situation where an assault weapons ban was openly discussed and it actually passed the House of Delegates. Now it passed in right. a watered down version in 2020, but now that's off the table completely. There's no way that's getting. Now you have a. At this, you have a lieutenant governor whose campaign signs was her holding an AR-15. So I think you know it's safe to say it's not going to happen. Yeah, I think that really gets to the level of the turnaround. You went from <laughs> a very serious discussion over whether or not the state government was going to literally confiscate AR-15s to having the lieutenant governor run on the fact that she likes to shoot AR-15s and had right. pictures right. of her holding one on her campaign merchandise. So it's, it's definitely a swift turnaround. It's definitely something that has a big impact. But at the same time, what I think people need to remember and I wrote an analysis piece on this that people can check out if, if you're a Reload member. Again, if you're not, you can head on over to reload.com and buy a membership today. It's $10 a month or $100 a year. If you notice there, that math means that you get two months free if, if you are to purchase a yearly membership. It is our most popular membership option, probably because of that reason, <laughs> I would imagine. Uh, and then it's $1,000 for a lifetime membership, which is really something that we couldn't survive without the support of our co-founding members and our now our lifetime members who really give us the cushion to keep going while we expand our membership to become a sustainable independent publication. But anyway, on the site, if you are a member, you can read that analysis where I talk about what, what's at stake beyond just the fact that there will almost certainly not be new gun control bills passed through Virginia because you do have the collection of bills that the Virginia Democrats were able to pass in 2020. They could not get the assault weapons ban because of opposition from moderate Democrats in the Senate after a huge grassroots campaign that spread through the entire state. There were 90% of the state's counties became Second Amendment sanctuaries during this time period where Democrats were passing these gun control bills and trying to pass the assault weapons ban. So, the assault weapons ban was affected by that. It didn't pass, and it wasn't even brought up again in 2021, but Terry McAuliffe had promised to resurrect it if he had won the governor's race, so he didn't win, and so now it won't be resurrected. But you do have, uh, th there were five bills that did pass in 2020, things from one handgun a month restriction, which is actually quite rare. Uh, Virginia is one of the only states that has that now. Uh, you also had a universal background check bill passed. You had a red flag bill passed. You had a bill that allows localities to implement their own restrictions on where people with concealed carry permits can actually carry their guns. So they could block off parks or permitted events like protests or uh, farmers market events, those kinds of things. All of those are still in effect. And one key 
point to remember is that Republicans flipped everything except for the state Senate because the state Senate is not up until 2023. I think it's called the House of Burgesses in Virginia. So we have a, this is the old dominion here. We have a, a wonderful, fancy old word for the Senate. And so that's still controlled by Democrats by one vote. And, you know, I don't know if they're going to go for overturning things they just passed a year ago. It seems unlikely to me. So we'll have to yeah. watch that and see exactly how it comes out. I don't, I don't know. What do you think? What do you think they're going to? I don't think it's likely, you know, the Republicans were able to take control, but by running sort of a moderate campaign, yeah. um, I don't see a real push for serious gun rights legislation happening. Um, Although but at the same time, you know, maybe Democrats might want to go towards the center and maybe they're yeah. willing to move on some more moderate bills. Maybe the election you know. has changed their point of view. I think they probably would be more open to passing moderately pro-gun bills or reforms to the bills that they just passed, I think it's less likely that they're going to be willing to outright repeal the things that they just voted to pass a year ago. Sure. But sure. I I could see them passing modifications to those things, uh, maybe added protections for the red flag orders, you know, people subject to the orders, they get more rigorous protections of their, their rights. Uh, you know, you could see maybe some more exemptions for concealed carry holders, maybe the universal background check requirement for private sales doesn't apply to people with concealed carry licenses, something like that could pass. Where does the, uh, where does the reciprocity stand at the moment? Could that, is that something that could be affected by a new attorney general? Yeah, I, you know, you could see that. Certainly the previous attorney general hearing had uni unilaterally removed all reciprocity deals with every other state at one point, but then Virginia passed a law in response to that, that made the state recognize every other state's permit law. But gotcha. you have seen uh, places like Pennsylvania, for instance, revoke the reciprocity deal between Pennsylvania and Virginia. So now if you have a Virginia permit, uh, if you're a person who say lives in Virginia and travels to Pennsylvania often to watch their mother's horse farm, <laughs> uh, horse farm um, that might have an effect on you because now you can't carry in Pennsylvania without getting a non-resident permit from Pennsylvania because your Virginia permit is not good there thanks to this reciprocity deal going away. And so you could see the attorney general come in and try to make a uh, deal with Pennsylvania's attorney general, well, at least – I would expect that he would have more interest in doing something like that and maybe uh, doing the same in other states as well. We'll, we'll see. Uh, there are certainly other ways that the executive branch could perhaps implement reforms on their own that don't require legislation. But uh, as we saw with uh, you did a piece on Joe Biden doing something like that this week as well with ostensibly uh, suicide effort yeah, yeah. prevent suicides. Uh, people should check that out as well. It's maybe a less controversial move, but maybe not, right? Uh, depending on the details of exactly how he wants to do that. But it's uh, a lot going on this week. We also had an NRA, <laughs> the NRA hack. Oh, the hack. Yes, there's a second trove of documents that have been released by Russian hackers this week that we're still working on getting verification on some of those documents. But uh, speaking of the NRA, though, we actually have Tim Mack uh, on this week to talk about his new book on the NRA called Misfire. And we're going to head over to that interview right now, actually, and get some more details on how the NRA got to the point that it's at today and some of the key players along the way, what they're really like, because I think there's hasn't been a book quite like this before. There hasn't been this kind of reporting out there. So we're going to head over there and, and do our thing with Tim. All right, I'm here with Tim Mack, an NPR investigative reporter and the author of a new book called Misfire that details the NRA's recent struggles, how it got itself to the place that it's at today, and all of the personalities as well that were involved along the way, the key players. Tim, can you tell us a little bit about yourself for the people in the audience who might not have uh, read your reporting before? 
Sure. I'm a reporter for NPR. I mainly specialize in political investigations. Uh, in the past, I'd written and done reporting for other outlets called, like the uh, Daily Beast and the Washington Examiner, as well as Politico. Um, and yeah, the, I've been writing about the NRA for a period of years. Uh, maybe not as long as Steve has been, but, uh, <laughs> you know, a, a little bite of time. Well, actually, I think we met at uh, the 2019 annual meeting, which actually chronicle in this book, in one of the chapters, pretty thoroughly. We were uh, both at the yeah. the members meeting when that blew up uh, and there was all kinds yeah. of crazy consternation. That's actually really, really a good chapter in this book, frankly. But uh, yeah, you've been reporting on it for a while. So have I. And I, w- I have to say, like going through this, reading it, uh, I actually listened to it on audiobook. There's a really good audio book copy of it. Very well done. It's not your voice, uh, sadly, for the listeners. Uh, but uh, I actually, I thought it was really well put together. Very, very yeah. nice production for the audiobook. But I was coming back from the farm. I was taking care of my mom's horses this week. And on my way back, I listened to the rest of the book. And I think that it's probably the most comprehensive account of what happened inside of the NRA that led up to the point where now there's a very realistic chance they might not exist in in a couple of years because of this lawsuit out of New York, because of all the things that happened that you chronicle in this book. Can you tell us just a little bit about the reporting process that that led to this? Sure. So this is the result of more than 120 interviews over a period of years, as well as thousands of pages of secret court depositions, as well as internal NRA emails and private NRA documents. Now, I mentioned the court depositions in particular, because if you look in the end notes of this book, you can see just how much of a how much of a backbone they are to the rest of the reporting throughout the story. Right. Yeah. That that, uh, as you know, Steve, um, Court depositions are, are are really the kind of gold standard of evidence in a lot of ways, uh, because you have senior NRA officials under oath describing what happened, who was there, what they said, what what the room was like, even. Um, and I use that to bring color to a lot of the stories uh, about what happened behind the NRA. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, for myself, and obviously there's some criticisms that I have of the book, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But sure. I do think that it really is the best place that people can go if they want to understand what has happened to get the NRA to the point that it's at today. And and the major personalities that were involved along the way, the key players, people like Wayne LaPierre and his wife, Susan LaPierre, I don't think there's really been a comprehensive look at their personalities and what they're like, who they are, how they operate. And this is really the first time I've read something where my understanding of them, and I've met Wayne a couple of times, uh, he's literally run away from me at points <laughs> during uh, board meetings where he doesn't want to, or at least his handlers didn't want him to answer questions from me. He was literally ushered into a kitchen to avoid talking to me at one of the board meetings. But that this really, this account that you've put together really fits everything I've ever heard about Wayne and experienced in person uh, as far as his personality and how he actually is in person, which is very different from what you see on TV or in when he's giving a speech at, you know, an annual meeting or a board meeting. And I think that that's one of the top things in, that you go through in here is sort of developing these personalities and how that impacts the way that the NRA is actually run. Well, you know, what was so great about it is that, you know, Steve, you and I have been steeped in a lot of these issues. Right. And we know that we know the players, at least um, uh, on the surface. But going into this project, writing a book about the NRA it, to most people, uh, it, it's a black box. You yeah. know, the NRA does it is very tight lipped um, and doesn't you don't really learn a lot about people and their personalities outside the organization. Um, it's it's in many ways a kind of very secretive organization. And so one of my interests in, in writing a book was to pull that curtain back and and give a little exposure and color to not just the personalities and the characters, but also um, what they're like as real human beings uh, and what happened behind the scenes in these rooms, uh, conference rooms and hotel suites and things like that, uh, where a lot of these big decisions were made. Yeah. And and as you said, the end notes here, they're very extensive, which as a reporter, I, 
I very much enjoy because a lot of political books that you see come out are really just kind of opinion, very long opinion pieces. <laughs> and that's not what this is. This is an actually thoroughly reported piece of journalism. Uh, it, it's comprehensive. It goes from Wayne's early days at the NRA all the way up until the bankruptcy case. And it, it really chronicles in detail what happened. And as somebody who watched, for instance, the bankruptcy hearings, the testimony that Wayne and, and others gave during that, what's in this book is very accurate to what was said at those hearings. And, and I think that there isn't anything else out there like this that I've come across to this point. One of my goals, Steve, in, in writing, this, writing a book uh, about the National Rifle Association was I wanted to write a book that um, even someone like you, who is deeply expert on the topic, would find something new in. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. You know, uh, details, the people, what happened yeah. behind the scenes. I wanted to bring some of that to life in a way that would be interesting for people who don't know anything about the NRA and people who know a lot about the NRA. Well, I think you accomplished that. And this one specific example is how Brewer, the current outside lawyer for the NRA, who has a lot of influence over how they run their legal strategy and really even beyond just the legal strategy, their strategy overall, he's kind of Wayne's right hand man, as you document in here. But I was interested in reading this to find out how he supplanted the, the previous right-hand man, which was Angus McQueen, who ran the top media contractor for the group for decades and gave strategic advice to Wayne during that whole period. And I think he did a really good job of explaining that in a way that made a lot of sense to me and was filled with information that I, I hadn't personally heard before, even though I do follow the group, obviously, very closely. So actually, can you talk a little bit about that? Give us a little bit of a preview, perhaps for people listening. What what it took, I guess, for Brewer to become the new guy. And I mean, really, there's that whole thing about Wayne needing like an advisor, a top advisor. He's had, I guess, the book lays out three different ones, right, throughout the years of him running the NRA. And you go through and explain sort of the mentality that, that led to that and how these power fights happened over the years and how people won. So can you just give a little bit from the book, I guess, about how Brewer overtook McQueen and some of the things that he did that are in here? Yeah, well, as you may know, and as some of your listeners may know, uh, Bill Brewer is the son-in-law of Angus McQueen, right. who was for many decades uh, has been kind of the strategist. Wayne LaPierre used to refer to Angus McQueen as his Yoda, you know, kind of his guiding star. Wayne LaPierre yeah, I, we, I think we got to start with Wayne, right? Yeah. To, to, to understand everything else about the NRA and the troubles that they're in financially and legally, you have to start with Wayne. And you, uh, the start of Misfire opens with the scene at Wayne's wedding in the late 90s to Susan LaPierre. And he doesn't show up, at least not on time. Uh, and he doesn't want to get married. And his best man takes a $100 bill puts it on the dashboard of the car and says, I don't think you should get married either. Uh, Wayne eventually does get talked into it by his bride and uh, the priest. And then, then comes this very awkward ceremony where even as they're saying their vows, Wayne LaPierre is unable to make any eye contact with his, with his bride. And there's a point to telling that story. And part of that point is to describe Wayne's personality and character and how his flaws led directly. There's a direct line between his personality flaws and the way that the NRA has been run. That so many powerful people around the NRA, whether it's Angus McQueen or Bill Brewer or other people who have made millions and millions of dollars off sweetheart deals with the NRA, have realized is that if you push Wayne LaPierre hard enough, you yell loud enough, Eventually, he's going to grant you the green light to do what it is that you wanted in the first place. And he's someone who longtime associates have described as weak-willed and almost cowardly, a, a kind of deeply anxious person who needed a crutch, an advisor, someone to tell him what it is to do, to have confidence in his decisions. And for so many years, that person was Angus McQueen. 
Now, there's a big family rivalry between Bill Brewer and Angus McQueen that I go into in this book. And that kind of lays the, 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 the human side down, that, that this is a story about not just greed and corruption, but one about betrayal and families and loyalty. Um, the, the story of Bill Brewer supplanting his father-in-law in their most important account, the National Rifle Association, and becoming Wayne's closest advisors, uh, advisor, or, or at least one of his closest advisors. The story of Bill Brewer kind of inching in and taking over his father-in-law's business, uh, or, or at least his father-in-law's contracts or uh, money flows, while Angus McQueen is laying sick and dying, and ultimately Angus McQueen passes away in the course of events. Yes, and you even describe a, a pretty enthralling scene, I guess, of, that's filled with not just political drama, internal political drama of the NRA, but also family drama when Brewer serves McQueen with the second lawsuit uh, as he's on his deathbed, essentially. Yeah, I mean, uh, this the, the, the book and the story of the NRA over the last few years is an incredibly dramatic one, one in which there was a great deal of intrigue and, and betrayal. And that's one of the, the incidents. In some ways, though, there, there are also like moments of weird comedy. You know, there's an anecdote about Bill Brewer messing around with a firearm after having purchased a, 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 a firearm and it, there's being a negligent discharge in his own home uh, and him kind of freaking out and putting his firearm away and later realizing that the round went through all of his very expensive suits. Yeah. Yeah. Brewer is a pretty fascinating figure in this whole thing because he's really not the kind of guy you might expect to be the top legal strategist at the NRA because he's, he's not a gun guy. He at least traditionally hasn't been a gun guy. He bought a gun, right? Uh, which he apparently didn't know how to use according to that anecdote. And then he's also been a longtime Democrat who's donated to Hillary Clinton and Beto O'Rourke over the years. And now he's, He's taking in tens of millions of dollars a year from the NRA for its legal expenses and basically is the right-hand man advising Wayne LaPierre on what to do with the organization on all, all fronts now. It's, it seems like a, a significant way he's really ingrained in the running of the organization. And that, that's really a fascinating part of the book is just how he came to be that role. And I guess it, it stems quite a bit from Wayne's concern about what the allegations of corruption and financial impropriety could result in for him personally, right? Can you talk a little bit about, about that section, about Wayne's feeling about, about how the way that he has run the organization and the, the sort of personal expense issues he's run into have led to a point where now he feels perhaps backed into listening to Brewer over anyone else because he fears there's going to be some significant legal consequences for him. Yeah, I, I feel like this is you know a great example of why it's so important to understand the personalities and the characters of people in order to tell the story of why things happen, right? And so, you know, if you talk to folks who've known Wayne LaPierre for decades and de decades, they describe this certain reaction that he has of self-pity that's so predominant, along with anxiety, that's so predominant that when, you know, school shootings happen, for example, uh, he's not, his first thought isn't uh, about the victims or even about his organization that he leads and the strategic decisions he's got to make. It's about himself. It's about his own safety. But what's what's going to happen to me? This is going to be so bad for me. The fallout of the school shooting. I I, I just uh, you know, and um, that's kind of the way Wayne Lapierre is. Um, and when it comes to these allegations of corruption, they've been well documented, as you know, in court and in court filings, millions of dollars in private jet travel, trips to the Bahamas and Italy, lavish dinners. Um, and as, as has been repeatedly said, six figures in suits for Wayne LaPierre. 
uh, from a uh, luxury Italian men's. Yeah, actually, there's a there's a uh, funny boutique. anecdote in the book about that that you you kind of uh, say something in here that I've always thought, which is the justification for those suits, right? Is that he's the face of the NRA and he has to go and do media to represent the NRA, right? But he very rarely ever does that in reality. He doesn't do a lot of TV interviews. He doesn't do a lot of interviews, period. So, uh, you know, I just thought that was a that was something that was in here that that really struck a chord with me because he's never sat down for an interview with me. Uh, and I, he's never sat down with an interview with a lot of people who've asked. Well, I mean, it's easily Googleable, right? You can you can. You can Google and see how often Wayne Lapierre has appeared before a camera for an interview. Yeah. Um, and by the way, he's always welcome. I don't, to come I don't on. think you'll find many. He's welcome to come on to the podcast. I'd be more than happy to to host him to respond to, to the book, even to your book. But uh, and I'm sure you'd be more Am than I happy. Am I invited for that episode yeah. too? <laughs> yes, we'll have a whole roundtable. Yeah. The, so the point of my telling these stories about his characters, they actually have, you know, I mean, the the, the it's, it's not just us watching this disaster unfold, they, there are actually real world consequences to it. And, um, you know, Wayne LaPierre, it's been testified in court, has told close associates that he's worried that as a result of all these allegations and the millions of dollars of, there's no other way to put it, corruption, that he could face personal liability as a result of that and potentially personal criminal liability. And he, he's he expressed to friends that he's worried that he could go to jail as a result of some of the misconduct at the NRA. Sure. Although I will point out, uh, and this is one of my criticisms of the book, right? That So that anecdote comes from Tony Macris, right? Uh, who's who said that Wayne told him the reason that he keeps Brewer around is because, he's a, because he thinks Brewer is the only one who can keep him out of jail. Now, Macris said this during the bankruptcy testimony, right? When he was testifying. Now, Macris works for Ackerman McQueen, right, the top contractor that the NRA has accused of doing basically their own corruption, taking, you know, charging them lots of money and not keeping books to indicate what they're being charged for, which is how they operated basically for 30 years. That was the kind of relationship that the NRA and, and Ackerman McQueen had. But uh, this is part of this came out as part of the whole fight after the big breakup that they had. So Tony Macris obviously has uh, ulterior motives or he has his own motivations for why he would say something like this. And this is one thing in the book that I like I wonder about is like you, you, you quote a lot from, you know, Josh Powell, Chris Cox, Tony Macris, um, Oliver North. And they're painted. I, I don't I don't think that you cover up their own interests. Obviously, you talk about that. And in real light, you talk about North's contract that he had with Ackerman McQueen, because, uh, you know, we haven't gotten into it yet on the uh, on this podcast, but North was the former president who accused Wayne of these extortions or, well, well <laughs> sorry, North accused Wayne of basically using NRA money to pay for his own personal expenses to the tune of tens of millions of dollars, right? That's just We've had a lot of uh, reporting on that over the years now. And then in response, Wayne accused him of trying to extort him to retire. And you go over that very detailed and accurately in this book. Uh, I just wonder if when I look at this situation, I guess my point here is I see a lot of people who have all kinds. They all have problems. They're all they're all a bit corrupt. They're all a bit rotten. Some more so than others, perhaps. But I wonder if you, you you rely too much on what North is saying or or the version that Josh Powell puts forward or the version that Chris Cox puts forward. Uh, and just give them too much credence in in the because they obviously have these their own ulterior motives when they're talking about, negatively about the NRA or Wayne LaPierre or, or Bill Brewer, right? So how do you deal with that that uh, conflict there? No, I mean, I appreciate your skepticism, right? Anytime you're doing a reporting story, you got to weigh, what are the motives of people? Why are they telling me what they're telling me? To what extent can I check it with other sources? Uh, these are the, the basics with, uh, 
with uh, with journalism and investigative journalism in particular. Now, you know, while I didn't interview Wayne Lapierre for this book, I did have hundreds of pages of him answering questions from lawyers and trying to explain his point of view. I, having read all those pages, having read Oliver North's uh, side of the story, having read uh, Millie Hallow's side of the story, and many other players in this saga, uh, you kind of have to make an assessment about what it is that happened. Um, and Wayne LaPierre's uh, explanations for the misconduct that happened at the NRA were the least compelling and the least, um, and were the least convincing. That he says, for example, that you know he didn't know that a lot of this stuff was happening. Well, if he didn't know, he kind of wove it into his his habits to make a point of not knowing what was happening inside the NRA. And there are a lot of different occasions in which it's been shown that he did know what was happening inside his organization. As a CEO and executive vice president, he has a responsibility to know. But what you see repeatedly uh, in public comments that you've seen, Steve, and other documentation that I've seen is him trying to pass the buck. He didn't know. Well, he should have, uh, in, in a lot of cases, he should have known. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's a fair assessment. I, I don't think that the picture you paint here is inaccurate, right? Uh, my main concern and critique is just that <laughs> the negative things that each side says about the other, I tend to believe all of them. <laughs> In this case, right? Uh, it's and and I'm I'm not I'm not dissuaded to the idea that perhaps Wayne has done more wrong than Oliver North or Chris Cox or or Josh Powell in this situation. It's I just uh, worry that any of them come off as being heroes in the story when they were all in on what was going on to a certain degree at the very least, right? If that, if that makes sense. And, and I don't think you necessarily let anyone off the hook. You do, you talk obviously about Oliver North's own contract with Ackerman McQueen, which was a contractor for the group he was going to be president of and creates a very obvious conflict of interest. Now, Wayne knew about that and suggested it and then later said he didn't, right? And that's obviously a huge problem that you, you discuss, but, but, you know, that's so that's my only point is just that these everyone involved in the situation had their own had to make their own compromises to get into that position in the first place that probably fairly reflect poorly on all of them. Some of them it reflects much more poorly on, which I guess is uh, the thrust of what you're you're getting at in this book. Right. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think what I'm trying to do here with Misfire is pull the curtain back and give the public. Uh, the best view inside the organization that has been that has been written to date, um, and and I I, I think I, I, you know giving it my best shot here um, to try to give color to some of the names we've heard about, but really describe what motivates them and explain uh, in in detail what were the turning points for the National Rifle Association over the last decade. Yeah, and I and I think you accomplished that goal. Uh, in my personal opinion, uh, because one of the things that's so hard to talk about sometimes when you're deep into this, because there, it's just so there's so much that's gone on that like even in this podcast here, it's hard to like establish, OK, <laughs> who is who's Millie Hallow, right? You, you mentioned her. Uh, she's a key player that we're probably not going to have time to dive into everything that happened with her. But you do in the book. And I, that's what I really like about the book is that I can point somebody who wants to know the ins and outs of how the NRA got to the point that it's at today and who were the key players and what, what are they like and what were their motivations and what led them to the places that they, that they went. And I can direct them now to this book, at least, to have a, a more comprehensive place instead of trying to send them 50 different news articles. That's, that's really where I think this book serves a real purpose for the average, you know, person who's interested in, on any side of the gun debate, really, or any side, side of politics or anyone in America, really, who wants to know what's going on. Because it is a fair, I think, recreation of the last several decades of the NRA, especially the last couple of years when things 
have gone started to go sideways for the group. And what I really wanted to do is 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 put the reader in the room where it happened. I wanted you to be in the room when Wayne Lapierre finds out Angus McQueen has passed away. I want you to be in the room when Oliver North confronts Wayne Lapierre uh, and there's this climactic battle for who is going to lead the future of the National Rifle Association. I really want you to be in the room uh, when NRA lobbyists are seeing what happened at Sandy Hook and trying to figure out what it is that the NRA strategy is going to be going forward after it. That's what my hope is, is is not just to kind of bring a comprehensive uh, story of, of the NRA's last few years, but also make it a little bit immersive. That, that you can read along and feel like you understood who who was there and what they said. Yeah, and I think that really comes across. And one of the things I really liked about it as well is it's very easy when you're when you're doing a critical look at the NRA, like this book is. It's obviously a very critical look at what's happened there and the people involved. But when you're doing that kind of book or that kind of writing, it's easy to fall into a trap where you just say, oh, this is it for the NRA. You know, look at all this bad stuff that's happened. Look at the trouble that they're in. They're done for. And I'm calling it, you know, this is my this is my declaration that they're over. And you you avoid doing that. And I think you, you're smart about it. And you, you also avoid the trap of trying to say that the NRA is manufactured power, right? That the that it's the money from the gun companies that make them powerful. You talk at length about how it's what really brings them influence in DC and in local state houses is their membership. Like they have 5 million dues paying members. Uh, There's obviously problems with perhaps recruiting new members as you also get into here, but that's what really gives them power. And then people have been saying the NRA is going away for 20 or 30 years, right? You make a point of that in the book and you say, look, this is this is what these people are like. This is how they got to where they are. But they've made it through a bunch of scandals in the past, and it's not inevitable that they're going to go away now. So to to look at the history of the NRA over the last decade or two decades or three decades is to see an organization that is incredibly resilient despite all the controversies controversies and troubles that they've been through. And not only that, Wayne LaPierre's kind of single, singular resiliency over the years, you know, a big question that I'm frequently asked is, if Wayne LaPierre is the way that you describe, anxious, weak-willed, cowardly, easily bullied, how is he the head of one of the most powerful and controversial organizations in America? How does he maintain, and how has he maintained that position for decades through all of the troubles that have happened, the mass shootings, the challenges on Capitol Hill, uh, the controversies from jackbooted thugs, you'll remember in the 90s after the Oklahoma City bombing, to Parkland, to everything else that the NRA has had to deal with over the last few decades. How does Wayne LaPierre survive if he is all those things? And, and you know, my theory of the case and, and what I kind of lay out in the arc of this book is that over time, he's his malleability has made it that, that he's indispensable to so many of the powerful people around him, whether it's directors on the board or for a long time, Angus McQueen. Now it's Bill Brewer and his law firm. Um, you know, one thing that just fascinated me about Wayne LaPierre is he never really wanted to be the head of the NRA. They kind of failed upwards into it. Um, right. And this is, no, this is no secret. In the 90s, he told the LA Times that he really just kind of wanted to own an ice cream store in Maine. That was his real, like, you know, as early as decades ago, he was crumbling under the pressure of, of being the head of this organization. And somehow he stayed. Maybe there's part of his personality that almost requires it. Um, but I don't, I don't speculate about that. But what you do know is when you talk to folks who have known Wayne for a really, really long time, is that he's a real character. There are a lot of weird elements to him, including, the, by the way, the fact that he's not a very good shot and not particularly interested in firearms to begin with. Yes. 
That's a that's a that's something you hear from people inside the NRA about Wayne. He's just not much of a gun guy. Uh, not that that's necessary, I suppose, for his position. Although obviously, you might imagine that the person who's you might the imagine that the head of the National years. Rifle Association, the National Rifle Association, might be uh, acquainted with rifles, uh, or at least be able to use one safely and proficiently. Um, uh, Wayne Lapierre, though, there have been plenty of stories about how he hasn't used them safely or proficiently. One anecdote in the book talks about how he flags someone when someone calls out to him, uh, and that there are jokes told at NRA HQ that if people don't do well, you might have to go shooting with Wayne. And of course, you know, there's, there's been, there's been other evidence that's been out there that, 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 uh, builds on that base, you know, like the, I'm sure you've seen the video that the New Yorker published about um, Wayne on an elephant hunt. Yep. Part of that is uh, Wayne takes a shot. And then you hear in the background, his guide say, I was telling you not to shoot. Uh, And then there's that scene from the video in which he tries to shoot uh, a wounded elephant point blank and misses on multiple occasions. Um, he's just not, as you said, he's just not a gun guy. Yeah, but that's another interesting thing about the book to me, because obviously it's, it's clearly a very critical look at Wayne, but it doesn't, it again, doesn't fall into the trap of just saying, well, he's this weak-willed dunce who only, who needs a right-hand man to tell him everything to do, uh, which which makes him out to be like, completely without his own agency. And I think that you do a good job of like describing his character flaws in that, in that regard, but then pointing out that, yeah, like, look, the NRA, even with all of the uh, corruption or the siphoning off of NRA money for personal expenses, which you detail to a very specific degree in this book, even with all of that, Wayne and the NRA have managed to have, and Ackerman McQueen and even Brewer have managed to have a lot of success and managed to be effective as, you know, an operating group, even with all this stuff going on. And and I think that, again, it, it would be much easier to just fall into the trap of saying, uh, of painting all these things and then ignoring the reality that they are a real and very effective group, even with all this going on. Yeah, I think a sober retelling of the story requires that you take the characters and the organizations seriously, right? That it's easy to fall into the trap, like you said, of these people becoming parody. But, you know, Wayne LaPierre, for all of his flaws, has maintained his position at the head of the NRA when a lot of people have come and gone. And the NRA, for all its many challenges over the years, is still up and at them, and that its main asset, which is millions and millions of passionate members, remains there to be activated and mobilized. You know, it, 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 it's an indisputable fact that Washington, D.C. right now, there's a Democratic House, there's a Democratic Senate, and a Democrat in the White House. And I haven't heard, Steve, I'm sure you haven't heard any very serious measures, uh, gun control legislation come up for debate. It's just not really being discussed right now. And we would be, we wouldn't be giving a, a sober analysis of the situation, to discount the NRA's role in that. Yeah, that's the important thing I think to remember here is the NRA is still very popular, is still very effective. And so was Ackerman McQueen when they worked with the NRA. So was Bill Brewer has been effective in in a number of cases that he's done with the NRA, it doesn't necessarily, that obviously doesn't justify all of the ways that they've used NRA members' money, especially given who the average NRA member is, because I think that's one of the core things and something you talk at length about in the book is like whose money this is that's being diverted for private jets and for yacht trips and for fancy suits and for you know, Bill Brewer's uh, legal expenses. These these people who fund the NRA for, in large part, are regular middle class Americans, 
and it's their money that's that's being subject to this. Yeah, and I, I think you know, um, writing this book, I did over 120 interviews with folks in this space. Right, the vast majority of these people are perfectly aligned with the NRA's policy goals, and have been very supportive of the NRA in the past and its membership. And so, one of the major reasons why people just talk to me and a reporter who in past years and in different times, they would never, never talk to. I mean, NRA folks are famously tight lipped and secretive, uh, particularly around reporters. But one of the reasons people felt compelled to tell these stories was they had felt deeply betrayed by the direction of the National Rifle Association under Wayne LaPierre's leadership and the actions and misconduct of senior officials. They felt really very badly on behalf of the people who are contributing 5, 10, 15 bucks a month to the NRI, thinking that it's going to be uh, used on Second Amendment advocacy, and instead it going to private jets, lavish meals, trips, so on and so forth. Yeah. I mean, look, I understand the NRA leadership is probably not going to be very happy with this book or with this podcast interview for that matter. But it's important in my mind to keep at the center of all this, the attention on the actual NRA members, because those are the people that matter much more than Wayne LaPierre, even to his telling of everything. They matter much more than Bill Brewer. They matter much more than Chris Cox or anyone else who is at the executive suite of the building in Fairfax. Yeah, and you've talked you talk to so many NRA members. I've talked to so many NRA members. And there's a lot of frustration out there with the current leadership. I don't think I've talked to an NRA member who is gung-ho for the direction that Wayne LaPierre and other executives have taken in this organization. But there certainly are quite a few vocal people who want more transparency and accountability. And that's kind of what I've tried to bring to this book is to try to bring a little light to what's been happening and what kind of conduct has been happening in the executive suites and among senior officials. Yeah. And and I think, frankly, it's I, it's very understandable that the NRA member, the average NRA member is distrustful of most major media outlets of even NPR. Uh, right. But one of the key things, again, about this book is you can go and look at the notes section. It's very thorough. And you can see exactly where the information in here is coming from. And that's another reason why I would recommend this book to people, because you can read it and then you can check the facts on that are included in here. You can go and see where these quotes came from, what deposition this was in. And then people can judge for themselves how things have been going at the NRA and how things are, are going to go. Because you're right, I haven't heard from rank and file NRA members who have been overjoyed about what's going on with Wayne LaPierre. I've heard from lots of NRA members who think he needs to resign and won't give any more money until he does. But board members are kind of the only ones that I've heard from, really, that are completely supportive of everything that he's been doing. And you kind of you also talk about the board in this book. I mean, you really get to everything in here, in my opinion. Well, yeah, I, I certainly hope to. Um... I wanted it to be more than just a series of uh, recitations from various sources, right? I didn't want it to be just a repackaging of things that people knew. Misfire is is, is about the 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 stories you've heard, but uh, never really could put your finger on it. That's that, that's what I was hoping to do with this book is to confirm and listen to uh, people in the NRA orbit and their stories and try to tell that fairly and accurately. Yeah, because I mean, obviously, a lot of discussion about NRA dealings over the years have gone on in, inside of the gun rights community, and a lot of criticism and a lot of rumors are out there, and still a lot of rumors circulate today about all kinds of stuff. But that's that's the great thing about this book is that you went through and confirmed some of the things that people have talked about for years, and did it in a way that's thoroughly reported, so that people can check what you're saying. Yeah, I, I appreciate that because that was that was really the that was really the effort here um, to bring color to these stories. Absolutely. And so, what can you? Why don't you just give us one? What's your favorite anecdote in this book? 
Gosh, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there are, there, there are so many. We've talked about the Oliver North scene and we've talked about Brewer and his, you know, his uh, negligent discharge. <laughs> um, we, uh, uh, one one character we haven't talked a lot about is Susan Lapierre. Yeah, and, she, and and there's not been very much written about her at all as a as a person. But what I found through my reporting is just how important she is to the NRA. Susan is someone who uh, doesn't have a formal staff position at the NRA, but is kind of this hidden hand as the wife of Wayne Lapierre. She's considered by many folks to be the quote-unquote first lady of the NRA. Um, there's this anecdote in there about how she thought that she was up in, she was going to be in line to be a, an ambassador after Trump was elected um, uh, and instead gets uh, on the National Park Board Foundation instead. That's close. Um, the National Park Foundation Board. Oh, I got the order where it's... Next up. Well, hey, your commitment to accuracy is what I like about this book. But my favorite anecdote, I'll tell you, is uh, one that I, <laughs> it's about the private flights, right? And how Wayne not only used them for himself uh, because of security issues, which, as you mentioned earlier, he, he basically justified almost every extravagant expense under security issues. But he would often have his family also fly around on private private jets. And I think my favorite example of that uh, is what you talk about in here is a flight by his niece and her daughter, right, to a women's leadership forum event in Orlando, Florida, from Dallas, Texas, right? And for, she had to fly private. And that flight, again, from Dallas, Texas, to Orlando, Florida, two of the biggest airports, commercial airports in the world, was a private flight that cost $29,000 for one flight, right? And I believe in the testimony uh, during the bankruptcy, Wayne said that this was necessary because all of the commercial flights had had mechanical issues or her, 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 her commercial flight had had mechanical issues. So she had to take a $30,000 private flight for one flight between two of the biggest airport hubs in the world. I've never had that luxury. Firstly, uh, as you pointed out, it's not really a security issue at that point, right? Um, but also, what would you or I do in that situation? We'd just take a slightly later flight. <laughs> um, but but there's like a lot of explanations peppered through this book. You know, this this book is not without... Wayne LaPierre's side of the story. Because part of it is, you know, one, one big basis of it is Wayne LaPierre's own words and explanations. Right. It's right. just that his explanations are explanations like that. Is that right. when he's asked about uh, a, a mansion that the NRA was going to purchase in Texas, he says it's about security. But at the same time, a golf club membership was involved in the transaction as well. Um, that's not about security. Uh, private jets are necessary because of security. Well, um, how come that your family takes private jets even when you're not around? What's the threat level for uh, Wayne LaPierre's niece? Uh, most people did not even know the name of Wayne LaPierre's niece before a lot of this reporting came out. You know, right. Wayne LaPierre goes and with his family to the Bahamas saying that there's a security threat. Well, that, that's an interesting explanation for why you would use NRA funds to go to the Bahamas. But why would going to a foreign country to, to be on a yacht with a bunch of unvetted people? Why, why is that safe? Well, what's safe about that? How does that ensure your security? Yeah. So I take at face value a lot of the explanations by Wayne LaPierre and people around Wayne LaPierre. But when you look at them and you drill down a little bit, they don't have a lot of then they're not super convincing. Yeah. I mean, that's, he often claims not to know anything that's going on. And he often claims that all of his extravagant expenses are because of security needs that don't really make a lot of sense. Uh, the yacht is another one where he, he had to go on one of the NRA's top vendors yachts for free because of security issues, even though he hadn't vetted, n nobody vetted the other passengers on the yacht. 
in any way. So it, there's a lot there's a lot of stuff like that. And yes, you do include his literal answers because again, he that bankruptcy forced him to testify to a lot of this stuff. Uh, and you also have private depositions that you were able to obtain for the book. And so his point of view is in there. It's just, yeah, whether or not people find that convincing is another question, I guess. But uh, I really appreciate you coming on. We've taken up a lot of your time. So I know you probably got other interviews to get to, but uh, where can people find the book if they want to read it themselves? Well, uh, you can find it at pretty much uh, any major online bookseller. If you're interested in it, it's called Misfire Inside the Downfall of the NRA. And it's by me, Tim Mack, T-I-M-M-A-K, last name's M-A-K. Um, and if you just type that in on your online retailer or go to a local bookstore, which I support, you can find Misfire. Or on Audible, like I listen to. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks, Tim. Thanks for coming on. We'll perhaps we'll bring you on again in the near future because uh, I think you're one of the top reporters on this beat. So I appreciate you. Well, being Steve, on. I don't think there's going to be any shortage of NRA news coming over the next year. <laughs> You've been on top yep. of it. Uh, and, and you're one of my go-to reads, uh, as you know. I mean, I, I'm constantly reading your stuff and I love what you've done with the reload. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, I wasn't joking earlier. Wayne LaPierre is welcome to come on I will, and discuss all of this. I'm Obviously, he has a lot of legal issues surrounding these assertions and allegations. I'm sure he probably won't be doing that, but he is welcome anytime, uh, as is any representative of the NRA, to come on and discuss these things as well. I want to be fair to everyone and give them a chance. Obviously, you... You have done that as well in this book, but uh, I'm happy to do it. Take, take it above and beyond. So, all right. Thank you again. Thanks so much, Steve. All right. That's all I've got for you guys this week. Remember, if you join today, you will get exclusive access to all kinds of great reporting and analysis that you can't get anywhere else besides the reload. We've got monthly memberships. We've got yearly memberships. Go on over to thereload.com and check it out. You will also get access to this podcast a day early and the opportunity to appear on the podcast and tell your own story. But until next time, I'm Stephen Gutowski, and I will see you guys again next week. <laughs>